Hi, I'm Miranda Wright with HOWC Ministries. To learn more about our ministries, please visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com. People are having questions because the Bible says that no man knows the day or the hour of the Lord's return. He says, but just like you know when the fig tree starts to put on the tender leaves, you know summer's coming. You can see the signs and know it's close. I think people are starting to see some fig leaves and they're starting to ask. I know there's something in the Bible about this, but I don't know for sure what it says. Some do, some don't. So I felt like the Lord wanted a lesson today because there's going to be a lot of conjecture. There's going to be a lot of opinions. But as we said in Sunday school, what does the word say? And I think mostly even for the young ones and the little ones who may have never even really heard this stuff, because this will most likely come in our lifetime. And if the Lord tarry, we, we pray for revival. We pray for a move of his spirit. We pray for righteousness to arrive and push it back a little more. But even if we buy a little more time, it's coming in the next. It's coming soon. So we need to know. The Bible, Jesus said to, to learn these things that he spoke. Keep it in your heart and wait and watch so that you're not taken unaware. And right now we have a generation that will definitely be taken unaware because most do not know what the scripture really says. The Bible says there's a falling away first and then the Antichrist is revealed. Why? He can't show himself as long as everybody knows. He's got to deceive. He's got to manipulate. The Bible says there's a great deception. How does he deceive? First they fall away from the truth so they don't know who he is. And he can deceive them. So what's going on in the world today? Right now we're seeing the nations turned upside down, not just our nation. It seems like it's our world right now, but this is happening all over the world. Every nation, no matter if it's a Muslim nation, no matter if it's supposed to be a Christian nation, if it's a Hindu nation, every nation in the world is going through the same twisting. How can that be? This is a message for a different day. Probably daddy will do it because he's done it many times before. But the Bible talks about uh, eight world empires. At the seventh, which is the one we're in now, we're in the seventh world empire. When the seventh world empire is destroyed, out of it comes the eighth, which the Bible calls the revised Roman empire. The eighth is the Antichrist's empire. What happens is when the seventh, where we are now, is collapsed, global economic collapse, global military collapse, everything collapse. Then they create a chaos, and out of the chaos, an antichrist system arises that says, I'm here to save you, I'm here to help, we have the solution. We'll give you money, we'll give you food, we'll give you what you need, come and follow me. But it's going to come at a price, it's going to come at an allegiance, and it will come at the cost of many lives of Christians, because the Bible says don't partake of it. The Bible says if you have to run to the wilderness and trust God to take care of you. The Bible is very clear. It tells you step by step everything that will happen and you're beginning to really see it. So right now the thing that's got people asking questions more than anything are the mask mandates. Some people mark of the beast. Some people know it's not that serious. Let me tell you what it is. The mask is not the mark of the beast. You will not go to hell for wearing the mask. But what it is, is training. It's conditioning. Because if they came right now and told everybody, you've got to take a microchip 
or they have now it's called RFID ink tattoos. It's a digital tattoo. Some of them you can even not even see it, but it's there. If you have to take this to buy, sell, or trade, everybody's like, whoa, 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 whoa. That's the mark of the beast. So you are conditioned, especially through a generation. If the kids go back to school and they have to wear a mask, it's a conditioning that the government can tell you what you have to put on your body, whether you want to or not, whether the science is there or not, whether it makes sense or not. Once you're okay with them telling you what you have to put on your body, then it transitions to a vaccine. It may not be healthy, it may not be helpful, it may not do anything, but you're being conditioned now to be forced to take something into your body. We'll let you take the mask off if you take the vaccine. Now you can go into the store. You don't have to wear the mask. Oh, wait a minute. We can't really tell if you took the vaccine or not because some people are resisting. Now we need some kind of ID. We need an identification to prove that you got the vaccine. So now we need to give you this mark. And once you have it, you can buy, sell, and trade. You can go to work. You can go to the store. You're safe. But if you don't take it, you're a danger to society and you will be hunted. The Bible says it comes to the point that those who refuse the mark of the beast will be killed. They'll be hunted. They'll be hated. And who you think is going to resist it? Christians. They're the only ones. That's the goal. That's where it's going. The devil knows what he is doing. And he's bragging about it. That's why when you look at the legislation, all these bills pushing all this stuff, HR 6666, they know what they're doing. That was the bill for the tracing and the tracking and the being able to track those who refuse to go along with the uh, coronavirus mandates and so forth and so on. Is there a disease? Yes, people are getting sick. Does it warrant the reaction that we have? No, it's part of the programming. It's part of the conditioning. And we might see it, but will these kids, because that's how the devil works. He'll push and he'll try. And if you resist, he'll back up. But then he'll start working on the generation. If we stand up and say no, he'll back off. But he's going to train the kids up through the school to accept it. So when their time comes and they're standing where we are, it's not going to be a big deal to them. I've been wearing the mask all my life. I really want to take it off. I'll take the vaccine. I already took the vaccine. What's a, what's a microchip? What's a... A tattoo, what's a mark? Whatever it will be. We say conjecturally what the mark will be. Could be microchip, we don't know for sure. Could be a technology we don't even know yet. We don't know for sure. But it fits the bill. And I can tell you this because uh, when we were young, we bought a horse. It was a race horse. And then Daddy found out after we had the horse that it had been microchipped. That's when they kind of first started coming out. So Daddy started researching the microchips. And he started preaching it as a possibility for the mark of the beast. And one of the things that I find interesting that I can remember him preaching was about how they could track this microchip anywhere through concrete, under the ocean, no matter where it was, they could track this microchip within a five-foot radius. And so now you have doctors asking, why in the world is there this six-foot-apart radius? There's no pathogen on the planet that can jump six feet. What's this all about? It's conjecture but it fits. There's a system being set up. And the devil works by setting all of the pieces in motion and then tying the loose end together. And it happens so quick 
it's a web, it's a net, you can't get out of it. So right now, it's conditioning. There are some people who are refusing the mask. That's your conviction, praise the Lord. I haven't worn it. I, I told the Lord I would do everything. Because for me personally, I felt like it was a trial run for me to see if I would be willing to give up certain things, have a little inconvenience to be able to do it. And the Lord has used it to build my faith because I really haven't been grocery shopping since it all started. And yet we have more food in our house than before. So God has done things to show I will provide. Now, if you haven't had that conviction or that call, that's not a problem. You're not going to go to hell for wearing the mask. Some people, their jobs right now, they can't. But I'm telling you to understand why it's there. It is a conditioning. If you understand the manipulation, you won't be deceived by it. Little eyes are watching. So we have to put forth the effort to teach them what is going on, or the devil will. Many will be deceived, according to the scripture. The Bible says, God said, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge because they don't know. I'm telling you, take the time you have now to read your Bible and learn it because you will lose it most likely within your lifetime, if not yours, then your children's. And it's already like this in many countries. We like, oh, that's so impossible. We are very privileged. The Bible's talked about the church of Laodicea who was rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing. That's America. We don't even need God. We don't even need our Bible. We can go to church and we don't even read it. Read it. Because when you don't have it, you're going to wish you knew it. And if you don't know it, you will be deceived. We talked about that in Sunday school, how cunning the devil is. It says he was the wisest of every creature God ever made. How would we think we would be able to outsmart that? You can't. Only God's wisdom supersedes his. So we have to seek God for his wisdom, learn how to hear his voice, obey and trust what his word says in opposition to what we think. He knows what's right. What's going on right now is about normalizing, legitimizing, and conditioning a generation to accept that somebody else has authority over your body and can decide what goes in it or on it. It's preparing for the mark. So what is the mark? This leads us to the lesson today. I tell you, it's not really going to be a preach. It's going to be a teaching. Take notes for those because I know several people asked about it. Pull your notes up on your phone. I'm going to hit several points, and then I'm going to give you some titles of some messages we already have on podcasts that go deeper into those areas because we can't cover it all today, but I will give you the overview and where you can look for more information if you want to research it further. But what does the Bible say about the mark? Go to Revelation 13, verse 15. And he had power to give life unto the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be killed. And he caused all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads, and that no man might buy or sell, save he have the mark or the number of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is six hundred threescore and six. 
People get all caught up in the 666. I'm going to translate it into somebody's name. I'm going to find out who it is. The number six in biblical numerology is the number of man. It's trusting in man. The Bible talks about surrendering our soul, our spirit, and our body to God. We trust God through his Holy Spirit. We trust him with our life. Our our works is our body we give to God. Our soul, we take on Jesus' blood. The soul is in the blood. Everything we give to God. So in these three areas, we surrender. God works on the three areas. But with the mark of the beast, with those who take it, they're trusting in man for all three areas. We can look at these things as principles because until it really happens, we can't say for sure what the physical translation is going to be, but we can look at the principle. Are you going to trust man for your spirituality? Or are you going to trust God and what his word says? Or are you going to trust man with your works and your physical life? Or are you going to trust God? Or are you going to trust man for the saving of your soul, for your emotional state, which includes your soul? Or are you going to trust God? Because if you trust man, you're going to have to take the mark to get these things. But if you trust God, he'll take care of you. The word mark. All right. When we look at the word mark that was translated to mark in the original Greek, it can be translated to a marking, a symbol, a scratch, an etching, an incision, or a branding. It literally makes you human livestock, like a cattle brand. Now, it doesn't have to be a cattle brand because we don't brand cattle that much anymore. We put a microchip in them. So it can be anything of that area, but it's literally turning humans back into the slaves of Egypt. You become human livestock. You belong to someone, a master. So here's the thing. We we can have all these conjectures. What is it going to be? Could be a microchip. They have now something called RFID tattoos, which is an RFID ink that they can just put it on the skin and they don't have to really do an incision and it's still digital. Um, They can even do it where you can't see it, but it can still be scanned. Doesn't really matter what it is. We know what it's gonna do. So when you see something that fits this criteria, refuse it. And the criteria is that you can't buy, sell, or trade if you don't have it. If you refuse it, it's punishable by death and you will have to worship the image of the beast. Now, it's interesting. The Bible says that the dragon speaks and wants to be worshipped, but he speaks through an image. That really made absolutely no sense when this was written. But we see a lot of speaking images today. The computer, the TV. In fact, if they don't allow the schools to open, the entire world is going to have a bunch of kids being trained in front of a computer screen it can be one teacher teaching the whole world what they want them to teach. And you don't have individual teachers interjecting, saying, look, sweetheart, this evolution stuff really, it just doesn't make sense. I know it's just something you got to learn, but it's all about control. The Bible says the Antichrist will cause witchcraft to increase. Biblically, witchcraft is control, deception, and manipulation. It incorporates things like drugs and medicine and pharmacia, but at its core, it's control. And that's what this is all about. And that's why it hates Christians, aside from the fact that it's the devil doing it and he hates God. But Christians can't be controlled by spirits or by men because they're obedient to the voice and leading of the Holy Spirit and the word of Scripture. Jacob sang that song about Jesus, who is the one who was and is and is to come. Jesus was, he always was from the beginning. 
at the time that the scriptures were written, he still is because he was alive, he walked the earth, and he is to come because he will be resurrected. I find it interesting that in the book of Revelations, it identifies the Antichrist at the time that it was written as the one who was, but is not, but will come. He didn't live again. This was an entity that inhabited somebody a long time ago, but at the time it was written, he was just a spirit, but there will be a day that he finds a way to come back again. He will either, many people teach that he will possess the Antichrist, and so the devil will be possessing him and he will be making the rules. It could be, because we talked about the image of the beast, that the, the devil will just be putting forth his decrees through digital means. People will believe it. I mean, look at what people are believing now, despite all evidence and all odds. No matter what you tell them or show them, they just believe whatever the TV says. So kids, I'm telling you, go to your prayer closet and ask God what the truth is because you can't trust what's coming across a screen. It's an image, and it might just be the image of the beast. Seek the Holy Spirit. Learn how to hear from God and get your wisdom from Him and learn the Word. When I look at where it says the Antichrist was, I go back to the first type of Antichrist because Paul said that the spirit of Antichrist was already in the world at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. So where did it start? The first place in Scripture that we see the Antichrist archetype come up was at the Tower of Babel. That's why a lot of your global governments now idolize the Tower of Babel and it's on their coins, it's on their flags, it's on their literature because they're trying to rebuild Babylon. The book of Revelation talks about mystery Babylon. It's all about trying to bring back that kingdom because Nimrod, he's the one who built the Tower of Babel, was your first antichrist archetype. It was that spirit that was released into the world that has manifested through others throughout the ages with a hatred for God and for Christ and for the saints. And it will manifest until the end, until it rebuilds its mystery Babylon and tries to reinstitute this rule over the earth. At the time, it was the first civilization that ruled the world. In the end, it will be a civilization. It will be a global government, global military, global economic system. We hear the little Sunday school story of the Tower of Babel about these people who wanted to build a tower to heaven and God knocked it down and it really doesn't make a lot of sense because that's not really the story. One of my favorite accounts of the story of the Tower of Babel is Josephus, the Hebrew scholar. He really goes into depth into the Jewish history of what was taking place here. Remember, this happened right after the flood of Noah. This was just a few generations in. They had begun to repopulate the earth, and God told them to spread out and go and populate the earth, go throughout the earth. He was keeping the people separate because there had to be a season fulfilled before the end times and before Christ came and all this. And when the people worked together, they were always working against God. They were always trying to take authority away from God. If they listened and spread out, they had to rely on God. They had to trust God. And each person individually could seek life, liberty, and the pursuit of God and happiness and all this stuff. But what happened with Nimrod was he wanted to control the people. So he built a civilization and he's like, no, everybody come here under me. He built a governmental structure where the people were dependent on the government. They were dependent on him. It was the first economic system where they were tied in to an economy. 
And it was all about putting worship on him at the head of it. In fact, when you look at the word that was translated to tower in the Tower of Babel, it's migdal, which literally means elevated pulpit. So when it says he built a tower to bring himself up to God, what it's really saying is that he put himself in the place of God over the people, which is the same description that the Bible gives of the Antichrist. He will put himself in the house of God as if he were God, in the place of God. That's what the Antichrist spirit does. It puts itself in God's place. Brother, that's as your provider, as your protector. I'll give you security if you give me liberty. Give up your freedom, your rights, and I'll protect you. It's putting itself in the place of God. Whatever God's role is, it wants that role so that you must worship and be subservient to it. He ruled over them as God. They were dependent. They were enslaved. This carried on through the ages. This is what you saw in Egypt. This is what the Israelites had to cry out to be delivered from. Go to Revelations chapter 18, verse 1. After these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and is become the habitation of devils. Now this is prophetic. This is something in the future that's being prophesied in the book of Revelations, but yet we're talking about Babylon. That was something in the past because it's the same spirit. It's the same system that's replayed all over again. Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and is become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and the cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. There is a protection. The Bible talks about what happened to the Israelites when they came out of Egypt. And it says that everything that happened to them was given for our example upon whom the ends of the world have come. Egypt was a type of Babylon, and God had to call his people out of it. And what we see in the wilderness, when they had to follow him, it says like a bride into the wilderness, they had to trust him. He he provide it for them. He gave them what they needed, not always what they wanted, but what they needed. But yet you see them longing to go back to their bondage in Egypt. And the things you see them wanting to go back to Egypt for will be the same things that will cause people to take the mark of the beast. The first thing was food. I want the pleasant food of Egypt. It literally says that they, they hated the manna from heaven that God gave them. The Bible describes it, and you'll know why, because it says it tasted like coriander oil, and they only got about a half a cup's worth twice a day. But it was enough to get them through to the promise. But they're like, you know what? I don't want this. I want the pleasant foods of Egypt. I'm willing to go back and have pleasure for a little while and suffer hell and torment for eternity because I like pizza better than what God's given me. When this time comes, people will take the mark for pleasant food if you don't know your scripture and if you're not disciplined and understand that there's a promised land 
coming, flowing with milk and honey. The Bible talks about the feast in heaven. We're going to have joys for eternity, but it might cost you to have to live on pecans and thistles for a little while in the wilderness while you trust God to take care of you. Or you can go get your pizza now and you can starve for eternity in hell and never be able to fulfill the lust of your flesh again. Believe the scripture or you'll fall. What happened in scripture in Egypt is given for our example, so I encourage you to read through it and understand that it will happen again. In fact, the plagues that come upon the earth in the last days, once all this stuff starts through tribulation, it's the same plagues from Egypt. God gave us the example. The Israelites became dependent on Egypt, on the Egyptian government, and then they were enslaved by it. They went in free, but they got dependent, and then they became slaves. So right now, while things are in chaos in a little bit, they're going to ease it over with, here's, here's a stimulus Here's some free food. Here's some extra food stamps. Get dependent, but eventually the tables turn and you become enslaved to it. And then they can take it all away and what are you going to do about it? This is not really a political message, but I'm giving you real right now examples that you can understand the tactic. Because even if God delivers us from this situation, it's coming and it's going to be the same thing. And I believe what we're seeing right now is the collapse of the Seventh World Empire. What you are seeing is the fall of the economic system, the military system, the governmental system, the rule of law. Everything that was the Seventh World Empire is collapsing. And when that happens, the Antichrist rises up out of it and his government will have all the answers and it will want to save everybody and it will sound real good. But if you trust it, you will be enslaved by it. Learn to trust God first. God called the Israelites out of Egypt and into the wilderness. Those who obeyed and separated themselves from it were protected and provided for by God. Those who didn't partook of the plagues and judgment of Egypt. Now, God is warning the people of the last days to come out from the system or you will receive of her plagues. There are judgments and plagues that come upon this Babylonian system in the last days. One of the plagues, interesting enough, is that whoever takes the mark of the beast will eventually have a grievous sore that many will die from. A point, that horse that we talked about where we first started researching the uh, microchips, she did eventually die of a grievous sore. She developed a tumor over where the, the microchip was. It went blind and then killed her. I'm not saying it's the thing, but it Confirmation. God speaks in ways that we see. Much of what will happen in the world in the end is an exact repeat of what happened in Egypt. The plagues will be re repeated. We have the example of scripture so that we can separate from it. And you've got to trust him to take you. If you've got to follow him literally into the wilderness, do what you have to do. He will take care of you. He will do for you what he did for the Israelites. But if you don't, you are susceptible. There's no protection because we're outside of right standing and all the plagues that come will affect you. There's a protection in faith, in obedience, and in right standing. Because if God is your good shepherd, then nothing can get through the shepherd to you unless he allows it to. Yes, bad things do happen to good people, but only if he allows it to and there's a purpose and a point to it. 
But if you don't belong to him, you will go through all manner of hardship and torment for no reason at all because the devil is an evil shepherd. He does things that are not for your good. Go to Luke chapter 17, verse 31. Come out of Egypt. Come out of Babylon. Come out of Babylon. Jesus spoke these words in Luke chapter 17, verse 31. He said, In that day, he which shall be upon the housetop and his stuff in the house, let him not come down to take it away. And he that is in the field, let him likewise not return back. Remember Lot's wife. Whosoever shall seek to save his life shall lose it. And whosoever shall lose his life shall preserve it. Jesus is warning not to get attached to your things, to your house, to your stuff. So many people talking about stocking up bullets to protect my house. Well, what happens when they implement the mark and you have to walk away from everything in order to serve God, but you done killed people for, for stuff? You're going to lose it all anyway. What's the point? He said, if you try to save your life, if you try to save the material things of this world, you're going to lose your soul in eternity. But if you're willing to give it all up to follow me and trust me, you're going to save it. And the Bible says he'll even use you to do great exploits. In other words, you will walk in the same miracle-working power that Moses did in that time, but you've got to trust him. You've got to follow him. It's not about trying to preserve this life. It's about preserving your soul and your righteousness and leading others to that place of forgiveness. Remember Lot's wife. What happened to Lot's wife? God warned her, judgment's coming. Everything's going to burn. Don't try to save it. Just get out. Get out of the system. Get out of, of Sodom and Gomorrah. Get out of this place that is going to partake of judgment. Cut yourself off of it or you will partake of the plague. You will partake of the judgment. Get out of it. She looked back. Her heart was where her home was. So she burned with it. He said, when you see these things coming, don't even go back to your house to get your stuff. Just run. Run to the mountains. Run to the wilderness. Trust God to take care of you. Because if you go back for stuff, you're going to lose everything. So I'm here to tell you today, break ties with materialism now. Be willing to leave it all for your first love, like a bride when she's called. The Bible gives many examples of a bride. When the bridegroom comes, she's got to go. She's got to leave her old family. She's got to leave her old home. She's got to leave everything. Just go. We're talking about the mark of the beast. We, what we did, we read before. The mark of the beast means that if you refuse it, you won't be able to buy. You won't be able to work. You won't be able to sell. You won't be able to have a business. You won't be able to be part of the Babylonian system. And you will die if you refuse it. So when that time comes, there's two options. You stand there and you refuse it and you die and you go to heaven and you are rewarded greatly and mightily or you run to the wilderness and trust God to take care of you there until he returns and brings his reward, which he will do. Either way, you've got to abandon materialism. That's why the Bible says that you cannot serve God and mammon, which is money or materialism. You will cling to one and leave the other. You will either leave materialism for God or you will leave God for materialism. You cannot serve both. He said, no man can serve two masters. You have to make a choice. Determine in your heart now, today, 
what choice you make. So when the time comes, there's not a battle or a struggle. You're going to run to the right husband because you're married to one or the other. And ultimately, in the end, you're going to live forever with one or the other. You can't serve God in mammon. So we got to ask ourselves right now, can we walk away from our home, our land, our business, our things, our bank accounts, everything to follow Jesus? This was the point he made with the rich young ruler. So this is not conjecture. This is scripture. Again, we don't get to have opinions. We get to either have faith in the words of Jesus or reject it. He said, on the final day, we will be judged by the words of the book. Did we believe what it had to say? If we choose to say, well, I think this, then we've already said, no, God, I don't trust you. I don't have faith. I don't believe you. You shut yourself out. We don't get that option. He's God. We're not. It's a hard thing to do, but that's why it says it takes humility to come to the king. It comes salvation. He gives his grace only to the humble. And ultimately, in the end, he's not being mean. He knows what's best for us. He's doing it all for a purpose, to prepare us for kingship in eternity. So ask yourself these questions. Can you leave these things for Jesus, or will you walk away from Jesus to keep these things? Because that's what the mark of the beast comes to decide for us. It's the line in the sand. You can't have these things and Jesus. Every parable that Jesus gave about the return of Christ was about that line in the sand. The separating of the sheep from the goats, the wheat from the tares, the faithful from the unfaithful, the selfless from the selfish. If you determine in your heart to make the decision now, it will be easier when the time comes. So I ask you right now, what is your treasure? Open to Matthew 6, 19. What is your treasure? Because Lot's wife, Look back. Jesus himself says in Matthew 6, verse 19, Lay not up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Home is where the heart is, but your heart is where your treasure is. So if Jesus is your treasure, then heaven is your home. If mammon or materialism is your treasure, then this world is your home, and you'll burn with it when you choose it over Jesus. This was the message of Lot's wife. Her heart, her faith was in Sodom, and she burned with it. So we got to remember this world is not our home. We're only passing through. We are espoused or engaged to Jesus, and we need to be ready and waiting to leave everything to run to meet him when he calls. The next thing that we need to know and burn in our hearts, little ones, about the mark of the beast, is that the Bible clearly says that you cannot go to heaven if you take it. There's no coming back from this. There's no, oh, I'll take it now and then I'll say I'm sorry later. Once you receive it, your fate is sealed. Go to Revelations chapter 14, verse 9. 
This is forcing people to get off the fence. You've got to choose a side. Are you in or are you out? And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So any person who receives the mark will drink of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture, in other words, no dilution, into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever received the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from thenceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Amen. So it's very clear. It says that those who refuse, many of them will be killed. But it says blessed are they when they're killed because they're resting from their works. They're out of the labor. They're out of the fight. My grandfather used to say when they started with the nuclear bombs and they were showing how bad it was in Hiroshima and, and the torment that the people went through. And he said, wow, the lucky one is the one that it fell right on their head. They went right to heaven, didn't know what hit them. God's saying, don't even worry. If they take your life, if you are in the Lord, you get your reward. That's where the reward is. It's not about the stuff of this life. The reward is in heaven and the new world that's coming. Do you really believe it? This is part of the gospel. We've got to believe the full gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember that those who take the mark will drink of the wine cup of the wrath of God. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a bit. But there's a danger in not understanding this. It says that many died because they refused to take it. That means who refused to take it? So are Christians here? There's a dangerous thing in not knowing the word of God and listening to selfish, self-centered, self-serving doctrines of demons. Because I've seen some people talking in social media about, wow, you know, things are really coming. Christ is really coming. Look, the mark of the beast is being set up. And I've seen others who claim to be Christians saying, oh, don't worry about it. That's not the mark of the beast or we'd already been raptured out by now. It's not in the scripture. Jesus said immediately after the tribulation of those days, then will you see the sign of the Son of Man coming. Then I'm coming to separate the goat from the sheep, the wheat from the tares. You will go through it. Who in the world is he beheading for refusing to worship the beast? Who is going to stand but one who doesn't already have their faith cemented and the understanding of the words and teachings of Jesus? You will be here. If it comes in your lifetime, you will face it. Nobody's getting a free ride. It didn't happen to the disciples in the old days. It's not happening to the Christians in China. It will not happen. Now, we are not appointed unto wrath. I'll explain that in a minute. There's a difference. Tribulation 
It's what the Antichrist does to the church. It's a tribulous time for us. In fact, the word tribulation comes from a tool called a tribulon. When you take the wheat, Jesus said it'll be like separating the wheat from the tares. When you take the wheat for harvest and you have to beat it loose from the chaff, you got to get the world off of it because the chaff is that useless stuff that looks like the wheat, but it's not edifying for making bread. And the bread is the body of Christ. And we are supposed to be the body of Christ, but the church is not cleansed. It's not a pure and white bride. She's not been sanctified. He said, I'm coming back for a pure and spotless bride. You will be purified through the fires of affliction. He makes it very clear. I'm going to use a tribulon. That's where the word tribulation comes from. The purpose in tribulation is to purify the church, to get it to let go of the things of Babylon. So anybody that tells you the church won't be in it, they don't even understand the meaning of it. After this time period, at the very end, there's a part at which God pulls his faithful out of it and then pours the wine cup of his wrath upon the wicked. We are not appointed unto that wrath. We are preserved from it. I'm going to explain that to you a little bit more in a minute. But the Christians will be here for the mark of the beast. So get it in your spirit that you will resist it. And I got to touch on this too because you're going to hear this. People will tell you you must submit to whatever a government tells you because the Bible says that your rulers are appointed by God. Most of the places that that's in there, it was actually talking about church authority and church leadership, not governmental. But even in those places, it says, where possible, live peaceably with all men. Now, God never condones violence. He, he rebuked the early Christians that were protesting and the zealots. They were, they were trying to become militia. He said, no, that's not what we are. He didn't endorse fighting, but he does command resisting. And the resisting, I mean you don't come into agreement with the enemy. And the best way I can give an example that we can understand is that wives are supposed to submit to their husband, but not when it is in opposition to God. So if your husband says you must have an abortion and you know that is in opposition to God's word and will, you can refuse to comply with that. When the government says you must take the mark of the beast and you know God said you cannot go to heaven if you do this, you refuse to comply with it. Peaceably, I go to heaven no matter what it takes. I'm not going to be a zealot or militia in the process, but we live peaceably when possible. And there are provisions for defense of others, protecting others, uh, protecting children. Protect There's a, there are provision for that. So we're not going to get into the semantics on that. But my point is that don't let people tell you that because it's a government decree, you must obey when it is an absolute opposition to the teachings of Jesus. He is the ultimate authority. And in actuality, the Antichrist is a usurping government anyway. It's not legitimate. So the laws aren't coming from the government that was appointed by God. So none of that applies. Abby made the comment. We went to a store and they were like, you have to wear the mask. And she's like, that's the devil rules. <laughs> she said, the devil's... <laughs> She said, the devil's not our king. We don't listen to his rules. <laughs> but that's the point. He's not the king. God is the king. We obey those rules regardless. Now, you're not going to go to hell for wearing the mask. It's the point. But praise God, when the mark comes, she's going to be like, that's the devil rules. <laughs> He's not my king. And that's the point. That's what we've got to learn. 
We've got to learn. All right. You've got to be willing to refuse even if you have to go into the wilderness, follow Jesus like they did in Exodus. For those who want to go deeper into that teaching, you can write down the word Sukkot, S-U-K-K-O-T-H, and you can go to our podcast and look up the message that we did uh, a year ago on our camping trip about Sukkot, which is a Jewish holiday, which is still observed to this day, and Jesus said will be observed even after his return. It's mandated, Um, and there's a reason for it because it prophetically talks a lot about this time period and these things. Uh, I don't have time to go into it, but if you want to go look it up, you can listen to that message for more understanding on the concept of being willing to follow God out into the wilderness and trusting him. Sukkot is a holiday where once a year the Jewish people live in a tent for a week. They camp out. They cut ties with everything of this world, and they worship God, and they have some quiet time and intimate time hearing from the Lord. And it's a reminder that we have to be willing at any point to cut ties with the world to follow Jesus. It's a reminder that this day is still coming. Now, for them, they do it in remembrance of Egypt whenever they had to do it to leave Egypt and go in the wilderness. For Christians, we do it as a remembrance of that, but also as a preparation for this. So, all right, we're coming to our last segment here, and we're going to go a little bit deeper. For me, go to Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. For me, I see something in the mark of the beast that is very important. We understand that God said that the Israelites followed him out of Egypt and into the wilderness like a bride. As their bridegroom, he protected them. He provided for them. He sent the manna from heaven. He fought their battles as long as they were faithful to him, as long as they were in the realm of his protection. And then he gave them something. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, something that is called in the Jewish culture the Shema. The Shema is a prayer that they pray every day to remind them of this time. And that prayer is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul and with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. That's what we're doing today. We're teaching each other and the children the words of God, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. The Shema was a prayer and a reminder that God is first. Whenever they asked Jesus what was the greatest commandment, he said the Shema. To love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, thy soul, thy strength, to love thy neighbor as thyself. If you do this, you will automatically fulfill all the other laws and commandments. If you love God more than yourself, you're going to do everything the Bible told you to do because that's the instruction it's giving us is to teach us how to love God more than ourselves and love others more than ourselves. It's what it comes down to. God took them out of Egypt, which was selfish. It was self-centered. It was all set on pleasure, materialism, and selfishness, no matter how much it hurt God or others. He took them out of that. He took them from, the Bible says that you are of your father, the devil, or you are of child of God. At that point, when you're in bondage to Egypt, you are a child of the devil. 
but Jesus came as a bridegroom to take them out of their father's house, out of the house of bondage, to take them unto himself out into the wilderness. This is what God did for them. And then he gave them the covenant, the Ten Commandments, was like a wedding vow. It was his marriage to Israel. The Shema is a remembrance of that, kind of like a wedding ring. It's a symbol. It's a mark. It's a commitment. It's a devotion. It's a belonging. It's them saying, I am set apart unto this husband. Look at what the next verse says about the Shema. Verse 8. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. The Shema was a mark placed on the hand or the forehead that showed that you were married to God. You belonged to him. You were faithful. You were set apart. You were committed. You trust in him for your protection and your provision. So what do you think the Antichrist is doing? It's an anti-Shema. It's a wedding ring to Satan. It's ownership. It's commitment. And it's bought with materialism. Selfishness. Now, in the New Testament, we have a different wedding ring, a symbol, a sign of our covenant with Jesus. Because what happened to Jesus, he did spiritually for us what God did physically for the Israelites in Egypt. Jesus came and he saved us from our old father, the devil. He took us out of that house of bondage to slavery. And then he took us to the Last Supper, the communion table, which in the culture of Israel was a wedding covenant. It was where they became espoused. When a husband and a bride became espoused, they would come together in the bride's father's house and they would have a dinner. And then the bridegroom and the bride-to-be would share a cup of covenant and they would drink from the same cup. And that showed that she was in agreement. She was bound to that. She was setting herself apart and aside to be espoused to him as her husband. So when the disciples drank from this cup, they represented the church. That's us. When we take communion, we are reminding ourselves and God that we are in covenant, marriage covenant, that we are espoused to him, that we are the bride of Christ and we will be faithful to wait for him in purity until he returns for us. So our wedding ring, our symbol is communion. That's why we do it. And that's why he said, every time you do this, it's in remembrance of me. Remember me. In fact, the communion was a Passover Seder, which was a reenactment of what happened back in Egypt. It all ties together. But the Antichrist, he's trying to steal the bride of Christ. He's trying to seduce the church. And I always say this, the Antichrist is not coming to deceive the world. The world is already deceived. He's coming to deceive the church. And when you see the, the whore that's riding on the beast in the scriptures and you see all of this stuff happening, it's coming from a counterfeit, seduced, unfaithful church. That's where the power is coming. It's going to come against the real ones. Now, it's a governmental system, yes. It's an economic system, yes. But it's a religious system at its core. And the things that are beginning to happen now in our government and in our economies and in our schools, it might put on a facade of being secular, but at its root, it's very, very religious. 
Now, during this uh, Last Supper, this communion, you see, during the, the Passover, which is what the communion, the Last Supper was, what happens is they recite some promises that God gave to Israel uh, when they came out of Egypt. The last one, that, well, the fourth one, is a promise that he would take you as a bride. He would protect you. He would do all these things. The disciples drank of this cup. There's one more cup. It's called the fifth cup. But nobody drank of that cup because the fifth cup is the cup that we read about in the book of Revelations. It's the cup of the wine of God's wrath. And nobody wants to partake of that. And I don't want to be partaker of God's wrath. So what they did was they said, well, we're just going to put this part aside. And before God returns, because they, they believe that God's coming back, but they didn't see Jesus as that person, that persona of God. So they say, okay, when God comes back, the, spirit, the prophet Elijah, he's going to come to tell us what's going on. So we'll just wait till he comes and he'll tell us what the deal is about this whole cup of wrath. So we're going to leave that aside. Jesus said when he came that John the Baptist fulfilled that, that he was the spirit of Elijah who had come to pronounce the way, but they missed it. So at the end of this, there's this fifth cup, this cup of wrath. What are we going to do with this cup? Well, it's going to be poured out on the last day. And it's going to be poured out on those who don't have a covering for it. Because what happened after the Last Supper, Jesus and the disciples went to the Garden of Gethsemane. And they knelt and he prayed. And we all remember the part where he cried out, you know, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And you're like, what cup? He already drank the Passover cups. They already did all that. Well, it was the cup of wrath. He was going to drink it on our behalf. He just became engaged to the church, right? He became our husband. What does the Bible say the husband is? The covering. He dies for his bride. He's willing to cover her sins. In fact, Paul said that this is the mystery of the church. He said, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church, be willing to die for them. But what I'm talking about is not physical. This is spiritual. I'm telling you the mystery of the church and Christ. He was willing to die for us as our bridegroom to cover us. He drank the cup of wrath for us. Every person is worthy of the wrath, but those who are committed to Jesus, those who are married to Christ, those who abide, stay faithful and don't run away from him. They are faithful to stick it out and not divorce him for the antichrist system. Those who keep his Shema, his wedding ring, his communion, his covenant, those who refuse to be part of the enemy because Jesus is going to take care of us, right? But if we don't trust him and we run to another lover for things, for materialism, for all of that stuff, then we forfeit the covering of the husband who drank the cup for us. Those who take the mark, the Bible says, will drink of the cup of God's wrath because they have no covering. They chose the wrong husband. They married the world, and they will be judged by it. But we marry Jesus, so we receive his pardon and his righteousness. When that day comes, God only sees Jesus. We're covered by his blood. Go to Daniel chapter 11, verse 31. The Bible talks about three harvests. I'm going to touch on just really quick. If you want to learn more, you can go to the podcast. There's a message called Three Harvests. 
In Israel, there's three harvests. There's a barley harvest. The Bible says Jesus is represented by the barley harvest. It's the first harvest that comes in. It's a very healthy grain. doesn't taste real good. It's not pleasant. It's called the poor man's grain, it's, and that represented Jesus. But it's good for you, and it's the first harvest. Jesus was the first harvest. He went to the Father first, first fruits. Then it talks about the next harvest in Israel that comes in is the wheat harvest. That's us. The Bible talks about us being the wheat that is gathered into the master's barn. And then after that, the last harvest in Israel is the grape harvest. That's the sinners. If you don't make it into the wheat harvest, you will be there to be part of the grape harvest. And the grapes are trampled under the foot. And they're poured out of the wine press of God's wrath as blood. And it's interesting that Jesus' blood was poured out for us. So we understand the the extreme suffering that Jesus took. But it's so that we don't have to be part of this if we really believe and trust in him. Jesus was the first fruits so that we can have faith that we will be raised to. One of the reasons that Jesus came and died and was crucified and was raised back to life was to give us faith that we don't have to fight for this life because if God could raise him, he's going to raise us too. God was proving to us that his words are true so that death has lost its sting and we won't fight for our lives and end up sinning while doing it. Jesus showed us that it's only temporary if we die in him. We will be raised again with him. And he is going to empower many to preach this message in the midst of persecution. This is the great end-time harvest revival that so many have been waiting for. It's not exactly what they thought it would be, but that's our king. Always doing things the way we least expect it. So maintain your relationship with him so that you don't miss it. Remember the ten virgins and keep your lamp burning. Everybody's been waiting for this revival. Everybody's so excited but they have the mindset of Egypt. They want their big pyramid. They want their flashy show. They want their lights. They want the crowds. They want to be loved. That's not what's coming. God is going to pour out his grace like never before. He's going to pour out power and exploit. There is going to be a mighty end time harvest and revival and people are going to be moving in power that hasn't been seen, not just since the book of Acts, since the Old Testament. But it's going to be for those who are willing to preach this message the truth that judgment is coming and you got to make a decision. Daniel talks about it in chapter 11, verse 31. It says, an arms, which is military or force, shall stand on his part, talking about the Antichrist, who is the one who will implement this mark. So the military is going to be on the Antichrist's side. And they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength. So the church is not going to have any real power anymore, the public church and shall take away the daily sacrifice. Now, some people see this as a physical rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, and it may be, and that they'll reinstitute the sacrifice and then take it away. It may be. As a Christian, my daily sacrifice is prayer and praise and worship. According to the New Testament, it says we are made priests and we give up a sacrifice of praise and of worship and of prayer and of supplication. It says these things are going to be taken away. So what are you being groomed for? When you get churches shut down, house meetings shut down, 
when states are mandating that you can't even praise or worship in church. You're being groomed for your sacrifice, your daily bread to be taken away. The sanctuary will be polluted of its strength. We saw an example of this, whether people realize it or not, when they shut the churches down and people stopped praising and praying, the strength that was restraining, the power that was restraining this stuff from happening in the spirit fell away and all manner of hell broke loose and people don't even realize what the devil did to them. And he shall take away the daily sacrifice and they shall place the abomination that maketh desolate, which is the antichrist wanting system wanting to be worshipped instead. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he, the Antichrist, corrupt with flattery. So what's the covenant? Our covenant is the blood of Jesus, the, the marriage covenant, being committed to Jesus' holiness, the committed, set apart. Holiness means set apart. Just like a bride is set apart unto her husband, so she doesn't cheat on him with others. It's the same thing with us. We're set apart for God. We don't cheat on him with the world or other spirits. But those who do wickedly against this covenant, they might call themselves Christians, but they're still in sin. They're still married to the world system. They're not faithful to Jesus through holiness. They do wickedly against the covenant. Those people will be corrupted by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Exploits. I like that. Doesn't say do miracles. Doesn't say do Bible study. They're going to do exploits. And we're talking about parting seas and walking across rivers and, and strong, mighty moves of God. I love it in, in the New Testament when it talks about Paul that said he did uncommon miracles or something to that effect. In other words, it, it was so strange you couldn't even put it in a category. It's whatever needed to be done to, to get the gospel out. Those who know their God, that's people who know the real God, the God of Scripture. Not the, well, I think God is this or I feel he should know the God of Scripture the real God. He will back up the real message with the real power of the kingdom when you preach the real Jesus. And they that understand among them shall instruct many, yet they will fall by the sword. So those who do know God, they're going to teach a lot of people, but some of them will be killed. And by flame, by captivity, some will be imprisoned, and they shall be spoiled many days. Now, when they shall fall, they shall be helped with a little help. I believe this is an outpouring of God's grace. We don't know for sure what that points to until we see it, but I think God's going to pour out his spirit all the more. I think that's the revival. I think that's the outpouring because it says that he will help them with a little help, but many shall cleave to them with flatteries. So I believe God's going to start using people mightily. He's going to give an outpouring to those who are going to be healing the sick, raising the dead, doing miracles, and many people will cleave to them, but the enemy is going to get in and start flattering them, trying to get them to incorporate with the system. The Antichrist is going to overtake their churches and their, their ministries. And some of them of understanding shall fall because of this, and it will test, try, or test the others, and to purge, and to make them white, even to the time of the end, because it is yet for an appointed time. This is all about purifying the bride, getting people to choose a side. And the king shall, this king they're talking about is the Antichrist, shall do according to his will, right? He's the opposite of Jesus. Jesus did the Father's will. This one will do 
his will. And those who follow him, he will allow them to do their will, but we do God's will. And he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that that is determined shall be done. God's going to allow it for a season. And then Jesus is going to come and stop it. But the purpose is the purification of the bride, deciding who is really for him. Will you cheat on him with another lover, with the Antichrist, with materialism, with the world, or will you be faithful to Jesus because he's coming back for the bride that's willing to stand and abide? Go to Revelations 19.5. I want you to see how this ends because I know this is a heavy message for those who maybe weren't brought up in it. And it can be scary and it can be pretty overwhelming, but it's something you've got to take to the Lord in prayer and don't have fear about because you've got to see it like this. When we do a deliverance, when the enemy knows his time is short, he's been found out, he's been called out, and we're about to cast him out, he starts manifesting with all form of manipulation, intimidation, and ugly. And if you don't know the process, you can be very scared by it because that's what the devil does. He'll even fight and get violent. But if you endure till the end, he is kicked out and then there is glory, there is victory, there is a new beginning, that person gets delivered. We are waiting for our deliverer. The earth is going to go through, is going through a deliverance. It's going to get violent. It's going to get intimidating. He's going to get ugly. But endure till the end with faith and joy that he is coming. You're going to be victorious. You're going to get the victory. Keep on Enduring In Revelations 19, chapter 5, it says, And the voice came out of the throne, saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants, and ye that fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come. We've been espoused to him. We've been waiting for him. We've been faithful. We haven't left him for another lover. We've endured until he came and now he's coming to gather us to the marriage supper and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed with fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he saith unto me, Right blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And flip ahead one chapter to chapter 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them, and I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their forehead or in their hand. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power. 
but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So we see that though there is a season of trial and tribulation, the end is victory. The end is blessing. The Bible likens it to a woman who is in travail to deliver. There is pain. It's a difficult thing. But when the end comes, there's joy. And you don't even remember all the hardship you went through because the joy on the other side of it is so great. There's love. The king is coming. Our husband that covered for us, he took the brunt of that judgment so we don't have to endure it. But those who are not married to him, they don't have that husband. They will still face the judgment. So don't allow yourself to trade him for an antichrist spirit. He won't cover for you. He will be judged and you will be judged with it. So we're going to close the service this morning. We're going to pray. And then I ask Danny to come and do communion for those who want to participate to remind ourselves that we are the bride of Christ, that he took that wrath for us to resubmit that commitment that he is our husband and we will be faithful to wait for him. This message was brought to you by HOWC Ministries. To learn more about our ministries, please visit us online at heartofworshipchurch.com.